Hello everyone, I'm Dana Stewart Bullock and this is Transformational Therapeutics, the language of healing. In today's episode, Rebecca and I will continue in a somewhat rambling way our discussion of archetypes and archetypal forces. So welcome. So today I want to talk further about archetypes. So this will be the second episode referring to archetypes. Right. So if this is your first episode listening to this podcast, first of all, just to let you know a little bit about how this podcast works, it works best if you start from episode one as it builds upon itself, gather the information and it makes more sense. But that being said, if you really have your heart set on learning about archetypes first, we still recommend that you go back to last week's episode first and then come back to part two. So I'm going to review much of the material because it's really deep and complex, and I think repetition is helpful. So an archetype, by definition, is a constant fundamental form, which is not only an image, but is also embodied in our bodies and anything that is ancient. So the word archetype comes from the words archaic, which means ancient, and typical. And it comes from the Greek for something molded first as a model. So it's a primitive model, and it's actually in the psyche. So it's not a concrete thing. It's a force or a form that's found in actually the collective unconscious. Our culture has an unconscious to it that is from the collective of everyone in the culture. Mm -hmm. So archetypes are images that reside in that space. And they are universal images that have existed since the remotest ancient times. And archetypes are actually patterns of behavior. Mm. And they're also expressed in myth and fairy tales. So can we back up into the patterns of behavior a little bit? Mm -hmm. I'd love to hear more about that. If you imagine that the collective unconscious is almost like an ocean or a matrix that we function within... Within that matrix or ocean are these archetypal forces, and they have a form to them that inform us and our behaviors. So, for instance, the mother archetype is just that. It is a force of the mother, and in different cultures it manifests differently, but the essence of it is similar. And the word mother comes from the word matrix, and so a mother is archetypally someone or some form that gives birth to a newness or a new form or a new baby or a new something. So that's sort of an example of an archetypal force, the force of the mother. Right. And an example of a pattern of behavior, if you apply the concept of a mother, then you would right away think of a certain pattern of behavior. Right. Yeah, and that, that would be sense. different depending on your own experience and de depending on the culture you're in. Sure. But the fundamental principle of it will be the same. Right. And archetypes generally appear or manifest in our instinctive behavior more than our conscious behavior. So more in like the subconscious. Right. The unconscious actually is mm -hmm. where they reside. And so behaviorally, they will dictate or be the map. They're actually a map for the behaviors that come out of us and out of our unconscious. And remember, I said in one of the other podcasts that 90 to 95% of everything we do is dictated by our unconscious. Right. So it's like this huge ocean or matrix that we live in symbolically, and that gives form to that force 
in this instance, we're just talking about the force of the mother. Now, within that, there are different sides of a mother. You can have the nourishing mother, the devouring mother. You can have all different kinds of mothering, but that mother itself is the archetypal force. Mm. I mean, I am not a parent. I am not a mother, but I can sort of, I'll use the word channel. I can channel the force of the maternal archetype. Sure. And never the whole extent of it, because archetypes are huge and have a huge amount of force to them. So we sort of get glimmers of them and dip into them, and but we cannot actually embody an archetype. It's too large a force and too powerful a force. Oh, interesting. Could that be why our experience of a mother would vary so much? Because if, if we take the mother in a literal form of a mother to a, a human child, that that mother would only get glimpses of it and then sprinkle in their this life experience, their, their experiences from this lifetime that might cloud it up. Yes, and they would sprinkle in, that's a great description, their own unconscious drives, whereas the archetype lives in the collective unconscious. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, it's sort of pre-existing to us as humanity. It's like this soup that we're born into, yeah. or this matrix that we're born into. Right. And And I personally... Because it's the instinctive part of us that manifests it, I think that in our physical form, because I'm always talking about the body and the body never lying and the the anatomy and the physiology, I think a lot of the archetypal forces are manifested not only in our primitive brains, but in our fascia. You know, I did a podcast on fascia, two podcasts on fascia. And I think that the movement aspect of it, where it manifests in our physical form. And so when I talked last time about somebody who's autistic, they have, or with cerebral palsy, they have typical patterns of movement. I personally think those patterns have an archetypal nature to them. Mm. You don't see them in people who don't have cerebral palsy. But you can know by seeing someone walking down the street who has cerebral palsy that that's what they have. They're typical, they're ancient, the movement patterns, and they come from an ancient part of the brain, which is the most primitive part of the brain. Ah, interesting. That's just how I've pulled it together. Right. This is from Carl Jung, and he talked about archetypes appearing in consciousness as a universal and recurring image, a pattern or a motif representing a typical human experience. So if you step back and you look at cultures around the globe, we all know what makes us human. We all have typical patterns of behavior, of growing up, of different times of life. These are the sort of archetypal forces that lie behind us. It's the matrix in which we evolve and live. Mm. That's just how I see it. Yeah. And the mythologies and the folklore and the art are manifestations of archetypal images and forces. Which is why we can receive so much comfort or solace from, or be moved so deeply from going and looking at art, from reading fairy tales, from watching movies, that kind of thing, right? Right, exactly. And archetypal images or archetypal forces They sort of convey a sense of divinity or power, which is much greater than our little egos, our little personalities. They're very basic and they're sort of in the background. I'm not sure how else to describe it. But we have all of these archetypes within us? We have access to them through our psyches and through the collective. So yeah, you could say it's in us. It's lying 
dormant mm-hmm. for our access. Yeah. Again, I see it as the matrix in which we reside, and it's it's sort of an energetic matrix. Mm. And in each lifetime, what we tune into is part of our journey on this planet. Yeah. This is a great quote, and I want to differentiate between symbols and archetypes. And, you know, I've talked about language and symbolic language. This quote is, the symbol is a visible sign of an invisible reality. When we interpret, we seek the invisible reality behind the visible and the connections between the two. So the difference between a sign and a symbol is a sign is like a road sign, like a stop sign or a caution sign or something. And a symbol points to an intuitive idea that cannot yet be formulated in any other or better way. Mm, I love that. So when you see, for instance, a symbolic painting, everybody sort of has somewhat of a different interpretation of it, but it's not something that can necessarily concretely be articulated or each person's articulation of it will be somewhat different dependent on their previous experience. So that's the symbolic. It, it, it has a feeling essence to it, which a road sign doesn't usually. <laughs> right, right. We're not typically moved by a road sign. Exactly. It moves us. <laughs> moves us in some way, sometimes in a negative way, in a positive way, right? And how does that apply to archetypes? Well, archetypes are, can only really be understood symbolically. Uh. When you're using symbolic language or seeing to interpret them. So would that mean, like, could a character be a a symbol? Absolutely. And could that be why we see certain archetypes, like we were talking about last episode, we see certain archetypes being replayed throughout stories and throughout characters in ones where we can relate to or feel something from? Right. And you and I were talking about Harry Potter last time and fairy tales and myths are where they archetypes are actually manifested. And in our culture in this day and time, we've lost the connection to our fairy tales and myths. We really have. Again, that's the background matrix that supports culture. And I think one of the reasons our culture is in such trouble is we've lost the connection to those myths and fairy tales. You said something last time about social media and devices, and we've all become so connected to them that we've become disconnected from the archetypal stories and the mythology that have guided civilization from the beginning. Right. And I think that's one of the reasons we're in such trouble. It's so interesting if you look at it intellectually of how Harry Potter came into our culture and took fire <laughs> like it just what it just uh took flight where people will still identify and resonate with it so deeply and sometimes it's even curious as to why but when you look at it through the archetype lens there are so many characters within that storyline that provide a connection to different ar- archetypes is that how you would yes but i i think they're also they are archetypal figures mm-hmm. And that's why we can identify with them because they're in our unconscious already Mm. and they take us to another level. And that's why those books were so successful. You know, just looking at the wizards, I mean, all of them were wizards and each one had a different manifestation of wizardry. And you had, yeah, Dumbledore was like the good wizard and then you had some bad wizards and Voldemort. And I mean, when you look at Voldemort, he shall not be named. (laughs) I mean, he was sort of the manifestation and the archetype of evil destruction. Right. 
he was sort of an anti-matter, anti-life figure. When you look at the two sides, you look at Voldemort and Harry, you see Harry as the new growing because he's a child. He represents the newness in the world. And Voldemort represented the old way, trying to kill off the new. Mm. This is really the best way to interpret archetypes and fairy tales and myths. So she took all of those different archetypal forces and concretized them and made them in many ways digestible. And the world went crazy for it because we need it so much. Yes. We were so thirsty for it. And I think we still are. And I think we're more thirsty now because we don't have the historical, you know, people used to sit in, in circles and pass down mythology through the generations. Absolutely. And it wasn't just the myths. It was the act of sitting with your ancestors, your parents and your grandparents and your children and that community that we've all lost or right. many of us have lost it. Mm -hmm. And we've become so disconnected. Archetypes connect us in a lot of ways. So we're going to talk more about Harry Potter because everybody knows about Harry Potter, but that brought together people, gave them a common language from different parts of the entire planet. Yes, so true. All ages, all walks of life. Right. And that was a force of connection. And when you look at the, right now, we're currently in the midst of COVID craziness. I mean, that could be seen as an archetypal force in some ways, it's a force of disease, dis-ease, and it's worldwide, but it's separating all of us. Sure. And yet also on one perspective, this one little virus that started on one side of the world has graced all of our lives and has connected us in a lot of ways in a, in a physical sense in that we've all shared this virus. Like I always think about that. It's pretty wild to experience something that so many on this planet has, and I've never been able to say that before. That's interesting that you say that, because when you say that, I see it more as that we've all experienced the fear associated with the virus more than the virus itself. And then as I just think about it, it's such a manifestation. I mean, symbolically, let's look at it symbolically at, of dis-ease and its planet-wide lack of ease mm -hmm. in our reaction to it, in the separation that it's caused and the divisiveness. Fascinating. Yeah. It's interesting too, because I remember you mentioning last week that in the archetype, there's both sides, right? There's like the the negative and the positive. Yeah, right. The paradox is held within the archetype, the two different sides. Right. And it's, it's interesting because in this context, it has created so much disconnection, but then there's also been a connection in a shared experience. There's, there's something that we all have had experience with, whether it be the physical symptoms that we can relate to or the, the fear of it or whatever. And we may not be stepping into that, but it has both sides, which is just a fascinating thing. But it's more interesting to me that in that shared experience, there isn't sharing. It hasn't brought us closer together. It's actually sent us further apart. Mm -hmm. So that was an opportunity that was sort of missed. It's a virus. It's everywhere on the planet. The force of it has been to produce fear and separation, even though we all pretty much have a shared experience. We have the choice to overcome that fear. And many of us are not doing that. Right. And that, to me, is what's so significant about this virus. Sure. I've talked to some people who are very on the extreme of the disconnection, and I've talked to other people who are more on the connection side. And uh, 
And it's interesting because it really is what you, what you do with it. Right. And how you see it. And when I was preparing for this, I was doing a lot of research on the archetype of the feminine and the masculine. Those are two really fundamental archetypal forces. You know, people talk about a patriarchal society, which ours is in many ways. If you step way back, like get off the planet and just look at the whole thing, this is a time of transition. I don't know what's coming, and I think it won't be in my lifetime. But in our culture in this country, it's very patriarchal, and it's becoming more and more separated. The masculine and the feminine are becoming more and more separate. Now, we all have masculine and feminine in us. So I, as a woman, am feminine, and then my inner is masculine, and a man has a masculine outer and a feminine inner. What we access and manifest is up to us. So there are women who appear very masculine, and there are men who appear very feminine, these are sort of manifestations of these archetypal forces. Mm. And so just in the present, when you, you just look at the reality of our society, it's um, the people in power are mostly masculine. I don't know how that balance is going to shift or if it is. The whole thing with the Supreme Court voting to reduce abortion rights, I mean, that's a, a masculine effect on the feminine it's just interesting to me to watch all of this and see it symbolically, to step back, see it symbolically, and wonder how it's going to play out over time. Is this how you like to use the archetypes as a, as a tool? Yeah, I look at everything symbolically first. I mean, I see it concretely, and then I think, look at it symbolically, like because I'm always looking for meaning. Mm. And then I look at the force that's creating it and why. When we were talking just a few minutes ago about mythology and folklore and fairy tales and that sort of thing, we don't have a lot of that anymore. Mm. And we are the wealthiest country on earth. And we have such a poverty of story and folklore and richness, we just don't have it. And I think that's why the whole Harry Potter thing was such a huge success, because yeah. people are starving for that. I Absolutely. mean, it is inherent in us being human. The culture has evolved, particularly with the advent of the internet and all of the devices and the technology, has really, in many ways, it's worked to bring us together, but also to separate us. And it, when we are together with technology, there's still a separation. It's not sitting in the same room with you necessarily. I don't participate a lot in social media, but I did see something. I think it was either on Instagram or Twitter. I don't know. Forgive me. And someone sent a picture of a famous person and the famous person didn't like it. And then the attacks that were directed toward that famous person were just mind boggling to me. So this social media thing and, and the separation that the technology promotes, because you can reach out from your little room, mm -hmm. um, also seems to be promoting a loss of self-awareness and self-control. Yeah. And, you know, manners. Yes. <laughs> There's no manners on social media. It's you don't need it. to me. Yeah. It's so interesting because, yeah, through that separation, people are free to say things that they probably would never say if they were actually face to face. To your face. I'm right. sure there's, you know, there's always the exception, but I feel like more common, some people will have that freedom to say things that they would never even entertain in, or say it in a way that they never would in in real person if they if they were in the same room then you start to you feel the humanness 
whether you're actually right. aware it's of it really, or not. It's a denial of the humanity. It is, and, yeah. And it has then created this destructive force. Yeah. I mean, it's almost Voldemortian force that, you know, I can say anything about you because I'm never going to see you and I can tear you apart. And it's manifesting everywhere. It's mm-hmm. just so bizarre. Yeah. The episode I did on containment, we don't seem to have the containment that community would provide, that fairy tales and mythology would normally provide. We've lost it. Right. And the technology has a lot to do with that. You know, it's interesting because as you're you're describing it, I'm thinking about it and seeing that, you know, when I'm in a room with you, I can't choose what I share. I mean, I can a little bit. I can filter. I can try and put on a face or I can filter my words to the best that I can. But like a lot of these things that we talk about in this podcast, like the the forces that I'm carrying, the body language, the the posture, all the things I'm portraying to you and, and communicating with you, whether I choose to or not. And in social media, it's all a decision of what you're choosing to share. And it's not the full picture. So you can put on this beautiful face and make make it look like your life is at the highest peak of all time. And you could be, you know, in your pajamas crying hysterically as you post that and nobody knows what you're really experiencing. And likewise, someone can only see your vicious comment and they, they don't see your humanness either. And they then see that you're just this vicious human or you're just this vicious person who, you know, is a hater that goes around dumping on everybody. But if you saw that person in real life, you might say, wait a second, maybe they're having a bad day. I can, I noticed that there's tear stains on their face as they're shouting at the bank teller. I wonder if there's more to the story. It's it's like we don't get the full picture. We just get glim- glimpses from social media. I just hadn't thought about it that way. But that's brilliant, Rebecca. So if you don't mind me asking, you take that into Harry Potter because you're mm. talking about the force. You're talking about a force that's sort of divorced from humanity that creates a negative outcome mm. and is not being curtailed. Yes. Well, in thinking about Harry Potter, uh, it's interesting because at first, Voldemort is very not human. Well, he's, you don't, you just hear him as this, he who must not be named in the earlier books. And as the time goes on in the later books, you learn more about him. You learn that he was a child and you realize, oh, wow, this used to be a, a boy who, you know, was a, not, who had a family life that was really challenging. And you start to get more of the story and you start to almost develop that he was a human that then believed he needed to tear himself apart to gain power to receive the validation that he never got in the first place or whatever it may have been. And um, he split himself, right? And then he had to occupy other humans in order to stay alive. Yeah. Yeah. other beings in order to stay alive. Right. He split himself seven times and in order to gain power and live longer and not die. And each time he split himself, it made him less human. And that was kind of the, it was like the most inhuman act to do that. And then he did it seven times. But the only way that he could stay alive was by occupying another being, right? It was because his soul was split up into seven parts and resided in objects. But it's really interesting because it's very similar to the whole social media thing mm-hmm. that you're sending pieces of yourself out there, but you don't, you're not really there. That's so true. I mean, and portraying different dissimilar. aspects. Yeah. yeah. But there are no restraints on you. You can just spew anything you want. Mm-hmm. And the destruction yeah. that you reach can be huge 
because there aren't consequences. And that to me is is archetypally the negative side of social media. Mm. I mean, it is really an archetypal force because it's huge. Yeah. Sort of like a horcrux. Yeah. When, and then there's also like, then there's a lot of talk about like imposter syndrome and comparing yourself because then you're comparing yourself because to this you can never snapshot this of perfection. You right. can never achieve it because, and that person isn't either. And that's the thing that's the, and so you, the humanity is being lost and right. taken away. Yeah. Oh, that's a big one. Yeah. But it's like, they're living in a horcrux 40% of I don't know how, what's the age range of people in the United States say they do not have one significant relationship. Mm. And loneliness much more contributes to death and heart disease and all this other stuff. Oh, yeah. So it's like the internet being a, like a massive brain experiment. Well, that's spot on. <laughs> and so she wrote that in the late 90s. So it wasn't this, the social media wasn't as big. So it's really an archetypal force that is changing our brains and killing us in some ways because you can't live without people and you can't live without story. And the culture's changed so much that you can't live without it. And then also the whole like algorithms will show you the things that you interact with the most. So So reinforces. Yeah. What's coming to mind is the Wizard of Oz and the man behind the curtain. But the essence was that she needed to go inside and it was all in there and nobody's going inside. There's a lot of good on it too. Oh, absolutely. There really is. And I think that because of the negativity, then that creates the contrast and the demand for some people to use it as a way to counteract as well. So like, there's a lot of, um, I mean, like I, I do it on my social media account. I talk a lot about this kind of thing and try to make, make it be more holistic. Um, but also there's a lot of people that I follow that do the same, that provide a lot of supportive, helpful content that can help you feel seen and heard and see and create more hope. So I feel like, you know, just like, the the good again, and the bad. It's both. both sides. There's both sides. And it's, yeah, it's fascinating to look at it that way. It's Harry Potter in real life. And all those, you know, fights and forces he had to fight. That is why it is so important to know folklore and fairy tales. So you take a civilization and the folklore and fairy tales are the compensating sort of dream life of the civilization. So you have the civilization and their folklore and fairy tales tell you what's underlying their actual culture. Mm. And we're missing half of what should be underlying our culture. It says here, in the study of any civilization, you can study either their sacred books or their sacred teachings, which give you their conscious tradition. That's what they preach. But you must always ask, and what is their folklore? Hmm. Then you get the unconscious compensation, and we don't have that. We don't. We need to create new myths for this time. Sure, especially encompassing technology to provide some structure and almost like a, a guidebook of how to navigate these times. And this was from another book I was reading. I just thought this was interesting. We have no, in our culture, we have no sacraments for the blessing of childbirth. Meaning, like, what would that be? No rituals to support a woman in childbirth. Mm. If she dies, she gets the last rites, but otherwise there is no ritual. It shows that it's not the affair of religion. It's considered to be a profane. It's outside religion. 
And it robs that part of the feminine life of all its depth and importance. It's just seen as a biological affair. And women today still look at it that way. Right. Like just a medical procedure. Right. It's like they have the baby. The child's born normally. But the women themselves have been robbed of a tremendous amount of deep realizations and religious significance about bringing a life into the world. Right. And birth is an archetypal happening. Sure. And that shift in identity as well. Right. From one moment, you're because, not a mother in the next moment. You and are. you're being born also into yeah. a new way of being. And, and there's no ritual to really, I mean, I, this is a totally, that's the other end of the spectrum. I had a friend once who was a vet and we were out on a call and she had to put a horse down and we got back into her truck and I said, Oh, Sally, my God, what do they do for you? And she was like, well, what do you mean? I said, you just helped end a life. What's the ritual? What goes around it? We have such slim remnants of what were once really rich rituals. Kids Mm. were never born without all kinds of sacred happenings. And marriage was a big thing. It wasn't just, you know, a white dress and walking down the aisle. And we've lost all of that. And I think that's one of the reasons we're in such trouble. Mm. We don't have that foundational, archetypal, ritualistic, ceremonial way of being. And I think it's to our detriment. Absolutely. It's such a good point because I hear a lot of women uh, will struggle postpartum. I mean, there's postpartum depression and all of that, but even just the postpartum, the feeling like I should be just happy because I have a child, but I didn't know that I would be dealing with this identity crisis. Nobody told me about that. Everyone just told me I'm going to love my baby. And yeah, I do. But there's also this loss of self. And I don't know how to handle that and how to transition into this new way of life. And, and having that ritual, that archetypal ceremony would provide so much structure and containment. Yeah, and solace. Right. For that transition. Right. And also show you show your brain, your psyche that this is a big deal. And it's okay to process and move through that transition. So these archetypes, these forces live in the collective. And apparently, if they aren't respected, and respected means acknowledged and used in ceremony, used in mythology and folklore, and used in our culture, they can apparently, I know this sounds crazy, but they can turn against us. How so? If you assume, and I do, that they're necessary because they've been around for millennia, And we're not participating in them. And then you look at the evidence of our culture right now. That's how. I mean, we're falling apart. We have really high rates of addiction. We have people who are lonely. We have not the connection to the community. And I think some of that is a result of the lack of the foundational understanding of a mythology in our culture. And cultures have been anchored in it forever. And we're not. I'm just going to read this quote from Marie-Louise von Franz. If we don't do something, if the gods are not renewed by our activity, so the force of spirit, whatever, has to be manifested in us and in movement in us, then they would just rot away. They would be nothing. So it's our consciousness that's necessary, our consciousness of these archetypal forces that are actually in us and around us and in some ways directing us. And that's why it's so important to be conscious of the life of the archetypes. They have sort of an autonomy in the psyche. And if we're not aware of that, they can become destructive. 
And she says that is why, and she said this in the 90s, that is why in a society where the archetypes are no longer honored in any way, believed in, nor taken care of consciously. I mean, think about the cultures where they honor the grandparents and they have altars and they have ritual and they have ceremony. In cultures that don't do that, you have surrogates. The surrogates for that are morbid political ideas, isms of all kinds, or drugs. I mean, that's us. Right. You have all the destructive powers overtaking people because the gods cannot move without humans. Hmm. So it's up to us to carry the force of spirit into the culture. And the way it's carried is through these ceremonies and rituals and mythologies and folklore. Hmm. And because we've lost that, we've become really self-destructive. Hmm. That's how I see it. What, what do we do with this information? It's so huge. I'm not sure. I think just becoming aware of it, becoming conscious of it, starting to look, we are so far gone. And I think people are attempting sort of superficially through trying to create their own ceremony, their own rituals. Well, it's interesting just thinking about it. If we start to look at it through this lens, to me, what this information that you've shared has offered me so far is on one hand, there, there is a little bit of overwhelm and a little bit of like a, a gut punch, like, oh God. But then on the other hand, it helps me, it almost validates my, my love for Harry Potter yes. and other stories like that. And it almost shows me that, oh, this is a this is a tool and a resource that I can use, and I have used it in dark times. There are times in my life that I, I always turn back to those stories, and now I can understand why. And that, to me, gives me, it turns that, that one, like, oh, that was cute. I just was obsessed with this story, to, oh, no, that's a really useful tool that I'm now going to consciously use. And I think, con- as you've taught us in this podcast, when you consciously do something with more intention than that, that makes it even more powerful, right? I absolutely agree. You know, I've read every Harry Potter four times, but my main one is by Madeline L'Engle, A Wind in the Door. And that for me is a book that I read probably once a year because somehow or other, literally, it's perfect for this time. It describes archetypal forces, but it centers me when I read it and makes me know that because I have such a poverty of history with ceremony or mythology or whatever, it connects me to a story that nourishes me. Mm-hmm. This may not be connected, but when we look at the obesity in our culture, it's really indicative archetypally of a lack of nourishment. Mm -hmm. And where is that lack of nourishment? It's in foundational understanding of story and history and mythology. Right, which gives you that anchor, that groundedness, a, a connection to something greater than just yourself. And, you know, it's also... I. I remember after my my dad passed away and I was in a therapy session and I told my therapist, I'm like, oh, I just want to lay down and read Harry Potter all the time. And she's like, do it. <laughs> and I remember that that feeling of giving myself permission to go into that place of being nourished and or feel nur- nurtured from these stories. And I find when I read those stories, I'm not eating as much. It's really interesting. Mm. It's, it nourishes me on a whole nother level. Right. It's so, it's so interesting. So yeah, I, I mean, I feel like 
just recognizing maybe, and also what you had said about the politics, which I find fascinating that perhaps when we're starved of this anchor to ritual and story and folklore, then we're going to naturally gravitate more strongly and more desperately to political stories and and things. And I feel like if you're feeling that that desperation or maddening anger when it comes to dealing with the political sides and everything, maybe, maybe that's a a little flag saying, Hey, maybe there's a a folklore or story that you could look up, go read Harry Potter, go read a wind in the door or look up and find, go dig into some mythology, just find something that brings you some nurturing and dig into that and see if there's, see if that can give you some, some fulfillment from within that you might be looking for externally. And in this day and age, I mean, including those books, books like the Philip Pullman series, the golden compass and the Mm, other two sort of those are mythological stories. For me, they were sort of an easier read than some of the Greek myths and that sort of thing, but they nourish me in a way that really nothing else does. Mm. And it's really, in many ways, personally, it's about putting down the iPad or the computer or whatever and just losing myself in a book in in that kind of a story. Yeah, there's something that it does that even, and I love... And monitoring your own physiology, because there are movies out there that will do it, but there are also movies that agitate you and can be highly addictive. And so finding the ones, the movies or the books that really nourish you on a physiological level, you'll feel the difference and using them Mm. as nourishment. Right. Yeah. Just use them. And if you know it and then go into it intentionally as a tool, I think it can provide so much more nourishment. Like the difference between print, like any of the other media, any of the other media is someone else's idea. Print is self-generated connection to what the story is. So you're making up the images and everything in hmm. your own mind. That's true. And that's how you're connecting. If you're watching any other, other media, that's somebody else's idea being projected onto you. That's so true. And that's why the connection with print is so much more deep and profound than any other media. That's why I never liked MTV, because I would listen to a song and I would have this whole image in my, and then I'd see the video from the song. It's like, that's not how I imagined it. Yeah. Right, right. So it really, is, you're right, it, it stimulates your own imagination. And that's where the archetypes actually live, is in our imagination. Mm, right, because even with TV and movies, that the music that's playing, the music will dictate your emotional reaction. And instead, it, when you're just reading a story, you have the emotional reaction is just within your own self. And that's probably why they say that the movie's never as good as the book. Right. Those Harry Potter movies were nothing like the books for me. Oh, yeah, no. There was no comparison. And in the olden days, it's like you'd sit around the fire and listen, and you'd be sort of magical, it would be dark out, and there would be storytelling. I found that, particularly with A Wind in the Door, because that's just my favorite book, if I read it as nonfiction and as a reality, and I'm in it. It's almost like sitting around the fire and hearing, you know, I'm sure in storytelling, there were noises that came around and it was a full body sort of experience. And so I've recommended the book to many people and told them to read it as nonfiction and as forces. The same thing was true in her book, A Wrinkle in Time. It was very similar. You get your imagination if you're in it, 
then it's, yeah, you're right, Joe. It's very different. It's the image thing that's so important. The perceptual piece. If I take it back to perception being so closely connected to your limbic system and your primitive brain, that's what you're really feeding is that primitive aspect of yourself. So mm. that would be the science of it and of the storytelling and of the sitting around the fire. And, and in the storytelling part, all of your senses are being stimulated. Well, your imagination will be stimulating them. The movie will be an external force will be stimulating them for you. So it's a bit different. It's actually squelching your own creativity. Right. Exactly. Wow. Thank you. Yeah. That's so, it's such a cool way to understand why I can feel so nourished from sitting and reading. And I do enjoy watching TV and movies and I do get joy out of it, but it's different. And if I do it too much, I can feel almost like numb and deadened. Whereas when and I can feel the addiction. It's mm, like oh, I, yeah. you get addicted to the screen as opposed to... One more. To, just one more episode. Just one more episode. Right, exactly. Yeah. Like or it's, you know, it's late, but, that, but you just can't get away from it. Yeah. Little kids, daddy, tell me another story. It's just verbal. And then your own mind has to create all the pictures. So true. So people are talking currently about getting out in nature and getting nourishment from that. But I would also say just from reading stories. Mm. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast, take a moment to subscribe to our show on Substack. There, you can have an opportunity to comment on this episode. And we would love to hear from you. Dana will personally respond to you and she'd love to hear your biggest takeaway from this episode. If you have questions, if you want to discuss, we would just love that. So be sure to subscribe on Substack. It's free. It's a wonderful way to connect and it's the best way to support this show. I would like to say that I'm thankful for you tuning in and I would love to hear feedback. If you could email me at transformationaltherapeutics at gmail.com and give me feedback on the podcast, perhaps suggest subjects that you would like me to cover in the future. And when I receive that feedback, I'd love to highlight and publicly thank whoever has sent it to me. I really enjoy sharing this with you. 